You are listening to the Canadian Bar Association National Magazine. Hi, I'm Eve Figee, the Editor-in-Chief of CBA National Magazine. Welcome to After the Pandemic, a conversation about the future of justice produced with the support of CBA Futures. There's no question that COVID-19 has forced innovation on a scale and at a pace that our court system would never have contemplated just a few months ago. Some courts have gone as far as holding virtual trials. Across several jurisdictions, litigant parties are at the very least expected to use available technology where they can to move matters along. And last week, the Supreme Court of Canada launched virtual hearings for the first time using Zoom. For a justice system long characterized by its slow grinding wheels, this is no small thing. And for proponents of digitalization, it's an opportunity to radically redesign our courts for the 21st century. We can also expect pressure to grow on governments to fund technological solutions that will help bring down the court's backlog and improve access to justice. But with accelerated change comes a few asterisks. Can the justice system really keep up with this pace of change post-COVID? Are we overlooking the disadvantages of moving large parts of the court system online? And what precautions should we be taking? To discuss these questions, my guest today is the author of Courts, Litigants, and the Digital Age. Karen Eltis is a law professor at Ottawa U and a faculty member at its Center for Law, Technology, and Society. She specializes in artificial intelligence, innovation law and policy, and cybersecurity. She is a past director of the University of Ottawa Human Rights Center, and she has also been invited as a subject matter expert to inform the work of the CBA Task Force on justice issues arising from COVID-19. Welcome to the program, Karen. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure to be here. Okay, so my first question to you to get this conversation uh, started is how has COVID-19 changed our commitment in the justice system uh, to really get with the times, to modernize? And uh, I guess my follow-up question to that is how is that a good thing and how is it uh, a risky thing? I think that's a very important question. First of all, a few introductory points. I think it's important to note that COVID simply exacerbated uh, pre-existing issues, uh, both with access and with accelerating the pace of digital familiarity and uh, competence and uh, ethics in the context of the digital age. That's both judicial ethics and ethics within uh, the profession. Uh, so this kind of fast-tracked uh, courts into the digital age practically overnight. And now I have to say, uh, there's no turning back. It's just a question of how uh, do we move forward and at what pace. Um, courts, needless to say, but I think it must be said, are a key uh, pillar of our democracy. And it is crucial that we understand that justice can't be halted. So a situation where either courts are significantly slowed or stopped uh, is extremely detrimental uh, to uh, society and to long-term uh, public trust. Now, this access was an issue as the former Chief Justice of Canada noted away before COVID. Uh, this again uh, brings it to the forefront. Uh, there are tremendous challenges which we can discuss, but also tremendous opportunity. Um, I think at this point, uh, courts and, and the profession had no choice uh, but to embrace uh, technology. And we could talk about this later, but there has been some 
uh, resistance. So the opportunity is uh, the swift adaptation. Uh, the challenges are many, uh, but the, the challenges mirror the opportunities, which is uh, we don't want to go from one extreme where we were entirely or largely perhaps resistant or very slow to adaptation and technology, uh, even in the face of tremendous backlogs, to the other extreme uh, where uh, em embracing technologies uh, is, is being done uh, too quickly. So courts, uh, we are reshaping the landscape, but courts are not in a position to uh, move too fast and break things. We need to be mindful, and that's a quote from Facebook, but we need to be mindful of uh, public trust and it's not a panacea. So just uh, to back up a little bit, you know, how come our courts have had such a hard time uh, modernizing uh, and, and had such a hard time introducing technology into their process uh, pre-COVID? Uh, one answer is uh, a very simple one. I think ours is a very traditional uh, profession. Uh, there's some elements of, of conservative and, and some with, with very good reason. Uh, justice, as I mentioned, cannot move fast and, and break things. It needs to preserve uh, public confidence, but preserving com public confidence also means uh, moving forward. So there is there's some general aversion that may be cultural. Uh, there are some technical and procedural challenges. Uh, uh, there's the need, of course, uh, to ensure proper competence as we're dealing with very delicate uh, matters. That said, I, I don't want uh, to paint a picture where uh, courts uh, were entirely unaware or insensitive to technological change and technological advancements because that's not the case. I'll give one very quick example. Uh, I've been working with the IOJT, which is the International Organization for Judicial Training, uh, and previous to that and, and also uh, during that time, uh, I had a, a little a, a stint, so to put it, with the NGI, the National Judicial Institute, and I've worked with the Victoria Judicial Colleges and judicial colleges around the world. And probably since 2007, uh, when I came on as a senior advisor to the NGI, we were already talking about bringing courts into the digital age and judicial ethics in the digital age. And that's true, of, as I said, for the IOJT. So uh, courts have not been insensitive to the need to move forward. Uh, but as I say, COVID has kind of fast-tracked us somewhat overnight. So you've been pretty clear here that um, um, that you know we're, you know the COVID has fast tracked uh, this move towards uh, adopting technology, uh, but you've also expressed concern that we're ill prepared to use technology, and so that there, that there is a risk of rushing a little too quickly into things um, without thinking through uh, some of the unintended consequences. So, what are some of those possible negative side effects that you you have in mind? Can you give us some examples? Sure, and and I think you put your finger on it when you said unintended consequences. The, the thing to remember, and I, I say this often about technology, is uh, the famous Donald Rumsfeld, what we don't know, we don't know. And uh, few of us could have predicted COVID, and yet that has ramifications for data and how we use technology and for privacy and for other human rights. So the idea is, is to safeguard against the unintended consequences. And I'll give you some examples in a second. I just want to say, I, I don't think, though, that we are ill-prepared. Uh, I, I simply want to caution against uh, moving in a way that is a panacea, all-embracing, moving from one extreme to another. I think we can be extremely prepared if we do it in a mindful way. I think one concern is uh, one that was explored and acknowledged by the Supreme Court of Canada in AB versus Bragg, uh, the question of access to justice, uh, the idea that when uh, court documents uh, are uh, propulsed into the public arena, 
despite uh, certain safeguards that may be inefficient, litigants or potential litigants may be deterred from accessing courts and their legal rights for fear that they'll be thrust into the public eye. Sorry, just let me cut in here. Uh, so AB versus Bragg is a 2012 Supreme Court of Canada decision that held that uh, victims of cyberbullying are entitled to remain anonymous in court applications, right? It, yes, it was a realization that uh, in the past, courts attempted to strike a balance between publicité des audiences, having publicity of, of, of courts, having open courts, and privacy. And in Bragg, the Supreme Court of Canada recognized that in the digital age, it's not just about privacy, but it's about access, and that vulnerable uh, litigants in particular may not uh, show up to court for fear that their uh, that their private details will be all over the internet. So even if they win, they lose. And what best illustrates this is a is a European case uh, where a man uh, sued Google to de-index uh, a detail of his financial financial dealings that he uh, considered humiliating, and he won against Google. But now these dealings that he wanted to mask are known by absolutely everyone worldwide. So the idea of the unintended consequences we go back to. Uh, people seeking justice may be dissuaded from accessing the courts uh, because they don't want their information to be all over the internet. So that is one uh, very simple uh, but very important recognition uh, that's exacerbated by the permanence of data online, right? So we talked about uh, courts losing uh, control over data, uh, decontextualized information, losing control because courts are thrust into an unfamiliar role that of publisher rather than custodian of sensitive data that may lead to identity theft, right? There's a whole industry and that's explored in my book of people using court information uh, in order to gain access to very sensitive data. Uh, this digital trail, this uh, potential of re-victimization, a person goes to court to get remedies and they may receive those remedies, but then they're re-victimized online. It can be uh, witness intimidation. Uh, there are cases, immigration cases, where people sought refugee status on the basis of their, for instance, sexual orientation or HIV status. And uh, the tribunals had posted the information online uh, in order to be open and transparent, which is a good thing. But suddenly the individual is sent back to their home country where uh, they may face potential recriminations. So we, and we saw a good example of this also a couple of years ago with the uh, the uh, case of the Romanian website uh, Globe24H.com that had republished Canadian legal decisions. Uh, those were published on Canly. Uh, and, uh, and I think they were trying to charge individuals for their removal online somehow. Um, I realize that's not the court system there, but this is the type of, this is the type of risk that we're running with, uh, digitalization of court information. Right. So, so and that's not to say, uh, because all human activity, I may be getting ahead of myself, but at least most human activity is fraught with, with risk. So that's not to say that we shouldn't. Uh, uh, harness the benefits of technology, quite the contrary. That's just an example of what I mean by doing so mindfully. Uh, in that case, uh, I think many uh, individuals with ill intentions realize what a wealth of information is available from court documents and now uh, court recordings and so on, and there's facial recognition. So we need to be particularly cautious in safeguarding the information for two main reasons, if I boil it down. The first reason, as I've said, and as is recognized by AB, is access to justice. We don't want people saying, look, I know that I have a case against my landlord, my employer, whatever it may be, and that I can win in court, but I shouldn't go because anybody's gonna find that information. And at the least, 
humiliate me or prevent me from having another job or, or not failing to rent an apartment to me. Or on the other end of the spectrum, they'll use that to intimidate my family members. Uh, they'll, they'll use that uh, to steal my data. And you mentioned the sort of, uh, I, I don't know if it rose to the level of blackmail, but certainly uh, 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 people who were fearful of being exposed to humiliation only because they claimed their rightful uh, uh, rights before the justice system. So access is the first. The second, and they're related, is confidence in the justice system. As I say, as courts move from simply uh, 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 being uh, publishers to being custodians of this very sensitive data, it's very important to understand that this must reflect in a positive manner the on the judiciary. And there are precautions that can be taken for this uh, and other problems that arise. And this is where there should be important resources dedicated to the courts for collaboration for cybersecurity and so on, because these are these matters are preventable. So they shouldn't stop us uh, from going digital. But the example of ABV versus Bragg is an example where we just go digital wholesale, trying to catch up and say, hey, let's put all court records online without realizing uh, that there might be an issue. And that decision made us realize that we need to do so mindfully. So what are the kind of precautions we can take? Yeah, so I, I think, um, and I go into detail on this in, in some of the publications, but for instance, uh, in, in Europe, uh, there is a tendency, and particularly in Belgium, uh, to anonymize uh, decisions. Not that these cannot be de-anonymized, but uh, it's a first level of protection. So people often say, well, you know, uh, why should I encrypt? Why should I use a password? A hacker can get to it anyway. You kind of want to make it more difficult uh, for these. Uh, the Globe 24 is an example. It's not particularly sophisticated hacking, right? Uh, but you don't want, courts don't want to become a target. So there's general anonymization, which is, was unheard of in, in Canada for non-family cases, uh, which makes it easier to avoid that type of uh, scenario. Uh, there is uh, the idea which has also been explored in Europe, uh, which is reminiscent of the charter of, uh, you know, the least restrictive means or proportionality in terms of disclosing only that information that is required. There are, of course, very technical uh, cybersecurity uh, measures uh, and uh, systems. If we look at, for instance, Germany, uh, they uh, uh, created a, a system, I think, called the abbreviation is BEA, uh, which is a secure system of e-communications and e-filing uh, for lawyers to ensure that only those who are entitled to access receive that access. And I believe they have draft legislation in place. In the UK as well, there's a uh, publication of best practices. Um, I, I mentioned ethics, which is really important. And that is uh, the basis is through uh, judicial education and education in the profession. Very often the unintended consequences, and I'll, I'll, I'll finish my answer on this, the unintended consequences that you refer to in your previous question, I think, result from mere inattention. So it's not something that can't be remedied. Uh, and that, I think, is the bottom line of education uh, with regards to the technical precautions uh, that you know are beyond the scope of this interview to spell out. But if there's proper education as to the technical precautions, then uh, these type of slips that can bring justice into disrepute are by and large prevented. So there, there are a couple of things in here that I'd like to unpack. Uh, I guess the first one is, um, you know, what we're talking here is about courts relying on private technological platforms and uh, data sharing platforms. And that's one part of the equation. The other part is is the users who are using it and, you know, the lawyers and the judges and all uh, who are 
using these systems and whether they're using these systems properly. Uh, but let's go to the pr first part of my comment. And so, you know, uh, how much should we worry about courts using these uh, private platforms? Um, do we need to be taking uh, these into more serious consideration? Yes, I think in fact, and this is an issue that can be discussed for a very long time, so I won't go into the, the meat of it, but I will say that this ambiguity uh, in terms of the framework for public and private uh, partnerships and uh, collaborations are a tremendous issues for courts in particular, uh, because this is the justice system and here we're talking about uh, in judicial independence. So at the onset, the parameters for these sorts of collaborations, explicit parameters, are by and large absent. And in the absence of a centralized platform, which by the way, uh, others such as uh, the Australian judiciary have entertained, private companies, so you can think of you know, Dropbox and, and others, uh, have uh, sort of taken up this empty space and have filled the market for obvious reasons, cloud solution, document solutions. Now, these can be extremely helpful, uh, but they are fraught with issues because the parameters are unclear. So it's extremely important to have an overarching framework and guidelines, balis, to, to, to uh, uh, frame uh, this private-public uh, relationship um, when we're dealing with, again, uh, not only very delicate uh, matters that, by the way, uh, the storing of the data is, is often located in uh, outside of Canada. So we were talking earlier about courts maintaining control. That, that may be an issue too. There is always this, this tension uh, uh, on the one hand, and that we see, and I think courts can perhaps turn to the experience, not only of other jurisdictions, but also financial institutions and other institutions. In, in the business world, there was a, a, a tension, uh, who's better equipped uh, to safeguard the data, right? Companies struggle with that. Uh, should it be uh, a, a large company, uh, you could think of, you know, the large U.S. platforms uh, who do have the means uh, and the knowledge uh, to deal with this, or should it be done in-house, which on the one hand uh, is, 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 is uh, uh, you have greater control over, but you may not have the resource. And that's why I should say other, other jurisdictions are looking at developing centralized uh, government platforms that are unique to the courts, so they're isolated, so they maintain independence. That is a, a tremendous project, but is one that is important uh, to look at uh, because the reliance or over-reliance on, on private platforms uh, or data sharing platforms or even cloud technology when it is uh, not uh, properly structured with the correct parameters is an issue that we uh, need to grapple with, I think, in a very sober and serious manner. You know, it's interesting because we were talking about the uh, the case of the uh, Romanian website, uh, and uh, you know, you were discussing the uh, right to be forgotten case, which you know, all these all these internet cases uh, cross international boundaries, and so I'm wondering how much uh, these issues surrounding the modernization of our courts and their use of technology and their digitalization uh, need to be approached as a global concern. Uh, at this time when obviously the internet has no borders? Yes, I think this falls into a larger question, which uh, many of us have, have dealt with, and certainly in, in my research, which I like to call uh, uh, the impact of the digital age on democratic governance. So this is a component of this larger issue uh, of where law was traditionally anchored in territory, uh, cyberspace challenges that, 
uh, tremendously. So that is a, a, a great affront to our legal system more generally. Courts don't have the luxury to wait for these larger issues to be settled. So uh, courts must move forward in order to allow for justice uh, to uh, uh, advance. Uh, and that's true uh, uh, also uh, with concerns that preceded COVID, but also with the potential multiplication of backlog post-COVID. So courts don't have the luxury, they must move forward. That said, uh, because of uh, the uh, essential preoccupation with confidence in the judiciary, when courts move forward, they must do so, as I say, in a particularly mindful manner. However, adoption of technology is not something that happens particularly quickly in the legal sector. And uh, it's not something that is uh, particularly present in uh, curricula at law schools. Uh, and I'm just wondering how important it is for us to start turning our attention to uh, properly forming professionals, be they uh, practicing lawyers, uh, judges, and also uh, graduating law schools, uh, to develop basic tech competence. And uh, what should we be doing to, uh, to achieve that? Yeah, I, I think a few things. Uh, uh, it, it is essential, just as there's been a recognition lately of the importance, and, and I'm not uh, uh, involved with the establishment of the, of the curriculum on an administrative level, but I know in our law school and any other law school, there's been lately greater attention uh, to legal ethics, right? And it's become a pillar of legal education. So too must there be uh, education with regard to lawyer ethics in the digital uh, courtroom. So you can have incidents uh, such as uh, a lawyer not answering the client because whoops, uh, oh, the, the message went into my junk, uh, or these type of very, very basic matters that I hear that surprise me. And on the one hand, at conferences, uh, most of us are talking about, we could talk about this if time permits, way beyond answering emails. We're talking about artificial intelligence in the courtroom and what sort of decisions, and this is before COVID, what sort of decisions in light of the backlog can artificial intelligence resolve as opposed to a human judge? So we're there. But lawyers are struggling, or some lawyers are struggling, uh, with managing emails. So that 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 needs to be certainly dealt with, uh, uh, and and I think that is probably an opportunity of COVID, bringing to the forefront the importance of uh, legal education in the area of legal ethics and technology, in the area of technological competence. And I have to say, we don't need to be we don't need to master technology per se. That's what often dissuades some of us. Uh, it's understanding how technology affects the legal profession, affects legal ethics, rather than understanding the technology per se. There are many uh, far more well-versed in the workings of technology per se who can, uh, who can assist us and, and law firms have the proper resources. It's a question of availing ourselves of these resources. That's something uh, that certainly needs to go hand in hand with moving forward with the technology itself. So moving forward with the technology and moving forward with the education, with the training, will go a long way towards doing away with really what is a bit of fear. Uh, uh, so it's, 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 it's uh, doing away with that fear and empowering courts, empowering attorneys to harness technology towards the betterment of justice, the betterment of access to justice, and confidence in the legal system. And what about empowering the litigants? Uh, because their computer literacy is also an issue. And I think uh, this has revealed itself to be a bit of a problem as courts have tried to move to uh, you know, uh, certain virtual hearings. 
Yeah, I, I, that, that, that's true. And the litigant is at the center of the process. We can't forget that. And I think there, first of all, and we could talk about this a little bit later because that's a, a, a long topic, but there's a distinction to be drawn between criminal law and the criminal justice process and other types of dispute resolution. So putting, because criminal law has uh, its own thorny issues uh, that become all the more thorny, potentially with technology uh, apprehensions about uh, due process uh, and uh, problems of equality. Uh, and so those can't uh, be lumped together. Uh, uh, that's extremely, extremely important. Uh, in terms of, of the litigants, uh, I think we need to be very mindful of specific challenges uh, inequality, socioeconomic inequalities. We can't take for granted that everyone has access to certain technologies. We have to take a very inclusive approach. Uh, we've seen uh, uh, courts struggle with self-represented litigants. Uh, we need to import these struggles in the context of the digital courts. Uh, there are, of course, the elderly. Uh, there are people with uh, disability, uh, litigants with other impairments and needs uh, for accommodation. Uh, so. It's fairness is a tremendously important uh, component as we modernize uh, uh, courts and as we move forward. So it's about fairness, efficiency, and uh, ethics uh, so that we don't undermine these systems. So we really need to balance on the one hand, yes, we want to be effective and we want to move forward, but we need to move forward in an inclusive manner uh, so that, in fact, technology, I think, has the potential to help us with some of the issues faced uh, by self-represented uh, litigants in the past uh, uh, because it does make uh, justice more accessible if it is done properly, particularly during COVID, a litigant who is at home uh, with, uh, with children, and that is, uh, you know, that, that is family status, for instance, is one of the enumerated grounds for potential discrimination with, in accordance with the Quebec Charter. So what do you do with that, right? What type of mindfulness uh, is needed in order to allow a litigant to move forward who may not have the circumstances that allow them uh, to have that space. There's also discussion that I read in a, in a report issued uh, by, I'm not sure which agency in the, the UK in online courts and COVID, the concern that members of the junior bar, uh, so younger lawyers, do not have the workspace uh, to navigate, to properly represent uh, their litigants, and that some litigants uh, may be particularly fearful about exposing themselves via video or telephone, what type of accommodations need to be in place to ensure a proper level of comfort? That's interesting because that brings up the issue about, uh, you know, uh, concerns among judges uh, over losing decorum uh, in their courtroom, which is conducted online. Uh, you know, I've heard stories of, you know, uh, <laughs> counsel showing up shirtless, for example, uh, <laughs> during a hearing. You know, uh, <laughs> How do we manage those concerns? Yeah, it's funny. I, I thought you were going to, to mention the, the uh, uh, alleged uh, uh, bathroom issue related to one of a U.S. Supreme Court hearing, and there have been many versions of the story. Uh, so uh, without pointing fingers, yeah, I think, you know, that, that mishaps will be mishaps. We, we all need to be more clement and understanding in the digital age. That said, decorum must be maintained, and that too has to do with uh, with education and best practices. And I've seen uh, documents, and it's, it's somewhere in one of my, my tabs, but I'm on full screen mode, uh, that uh, the Ontario courts uh, that have, have, I think the OJA has issued best practices. I think it's really important to simplify guidelines 
uh, very often it's merely like many of the unintended consequences it's simply that we're not used to it and we haven't given it proper thought so having a little capsule that familiarizes litigants and there's different levels of course there's one that may be intended for the attorney one for the litigants uh you know i can say it's kind of like check your junk folder one needs to be told wear a shirt it seems too obvious to say it needs to be said but it needs to be said in a simple way, right? You can't have pages and pages of decorum otherwise on, on the internet. And that ties into the greater question that you mentioned about the greater change. It's kind of like in the past when we used to conclude contracts and the like on paper, we used to think that as lawyers, that more is better. So we you know have all the details in it. On the internet, on these, I agree, I agree, and my tangent, I hope is relevant. There's no way we're reading this because we're doing things quickly on the internet. So the more you put, the more confusing it is and the more counterproductive it is. So with these types of things, less is more. So I think there we need a switch because that's gonna get people's attention. Less is more. And again, tying into my previous comment, decorum is of the essence, but it needs to be balanced with the needs of marginalized populations. And we have to think about how uh, we, we can have decorum, but not at the expense of excluding those who, particularly in confinement, simply uh, 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 can't uh, comply with certain requirements. I'm talking about the litigants in particular. How do you view online dispute resolution, private ODR in particular, as a competing and complementary tool to traditional state-run courts? Uh, I guess what I'm getting at here is, might we see an acceleration towards that to sort of open up uh, uh, access to justice to, uh, uh, you know, um, litigants who normally wouldn't be able to afford, uh, the long process of going through a trial. And are there any concerns here that our public courts are abdicating their own responsibility in overseeing that some of these cases are carried out, uh, the right way? Yeah, I think a few points, and I especially like this topic because, uh, early on in, in, in my career, I was a, a lawyer at a New York law firm and uh, working in uh, international uh, arbitration, uh, so alternative dispute resolution mechanisms. Uh, a, few, a few points here. First, bringing us back to an earlier question, I think we need to be extremely mindful in addressing the issue of courts uh, partnering with private platforms. As uh, Duick has said, uh, who is a, a scholar, uh, the powers of rulemaking, enforcement, excuse me, and review are all concentrated in the same hand. So that's one issue that we flagged before that I think we have to be careful. With regard uh, to uh, online dispute resolution, private dispute resolution, it, it, it's a very positive development, uh, obviously, and it's complementary. But having practiced in this area, and perhaps that's having practiced in a large firm, I suppose, these mechanisms are very well suited as the Supreme Court itself has noted in, in uh, Dua's versus Facebook, very well suited for parties that are on par, uh, so to speak, in terms of uh, their uh, status, in terms of their uh, capacities, uh, in terms of their sophistication. So it's a wonderful way uh, to unclog, and it has been for a long time, to unclog, so to speak, the uh, uh, the, the public system, which is uh, débordé. They lend themselves very well to that type of situation where you have two parties that are relatively on equal footing. Uh, they lend themselves very well to potential settlement rather than to perhaps binary outcomes, right? With a win-lose and particularly, and that's where I refer to uh, that same case, uh, Duas versus Facebook, where you have uh, a party that is uh, uh, either just, uh, you know, Monsieur uh, uh, just anybody, uh, you and I just, or, or someone without legal knowledge versus a very uh, uh, sophisticated party. 
so I think one needs to, to, nothing is a panacea. Just like online courts are not a panacea and sometimes you do have to meet in person, so too ODR is extremely important and can play a very helpful role, but it's often better suited as opposed to a replacement in certain circumstances rather than others. So it's really important in terms of access to justice that uh, public courts, you use the word abdicate, really important uh, to understand that there are certain scenarios uh, where uh, these types of mechanisms may not uh, be the ideal form. So really, I think as we move forward, we're looking at a, at a hybrid uh, system, which is, which is good. That is to say, we will have uh, uh, increasing use of technology, again, mindfully harnessing technology. We will have use of ODR, but again, that will be for specific cases uh, rather than others, and I've mentioned some criteria. And then we will also have some very traditional uh, courtroom sittings as they are permitted, uh, all with the goals of increasing access to justice and doing it in a way that is not a one-size-fits-all, but in a way that comports with uh, uh, increasing confidence in the justice system and availing ourselves of the benefits of technology, all while minimizing the drawbacks. So you mentioned earlier uh, artificial intelligence, and it, yeah. it's an interesting question because uh, some, I sometimes get the sense that uh, artificial intelligence is going through uh, a little bit of a you know, it's suddenly become a little bit uncool again because perhaps it hasn't uh, made the advances that people are quite expecting of it uh, just yet. But it seems to have uh, made some progress in the legal profession, uh, particularly in terms of, you know, data analytics uh, and using machine learning to get a better sense of, you know, uh, patterns that we're seeing in the population. Uh, we, we've seen uh, it used uh, to some extent, maybe not artificial intelligence, but machine learning at, at any rate for bail hearings in, in some cases and in other scenarios as well. So people in the legal community certainly were already uh, turning their minds uh, due to you know the tremendous backlog, again, pre-COVID, the proper role of enhanced decision making in the justice system. And my particular preoccupation was how can we make sure that this enhanced algorithmic decision-making is again used uh, to uh, 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 better access all while protecting constitutional rights in the digital age. Uh, so now with Corona uh, and the canceling and postponing of so many non so-called non-urgent matters, because they're certainly urgent for those uh, who are concerned, the prospect of harnessing AI in the justice context becomes more intriguing than ever. And I want to uh, mention one of the pioneers and uh, my colleague uh, Ian Kerr, uh, who, who passed away of, of blessed memory, and he said, you know, he used to caution, uh, being a robotics lawyer, that uh, what is important about AI, and we'll see how it's relevant to the justice system, is that it's quote unpredictable by design, that it's volatile, right? So it's kind of like we we're talking about about kids, kind of like our offspring, who uh, pr proverbially whose actions, uh, you know, uh, escape the parents control, you create AI and it becomes this, we've all heard about it, this black box. AI by definition evolves beyond its initial programming. Uh, and you could think of you know, the Tay incident if that resonates for some of us. Um, so we have to revisit, how does that relate to the legal system? We have to revisit certain pillars of the legal system if we are to use AI. And I think we will use AI. The question again, the same as with technology more generally, is how to use AI in the justice system in respect of constitutional rights. So we'll have to revisit certain things. We talked about con consent, we talked about uh, borders uh, and how the law operates within these territorial borders in the cyber age. 
foreseeability as a legal pillar. If AI is, is unpredictable by design, how do we deal with that? I'd like to ask you um, what it is that you would like our, uh, you know, our, our ministers of justice, our, our, our provincial governments and our courts to, uh, if there's one thing that they should really, really focus on, uh, and maybe they have to focus, maybe different people have to focus on different things. Uh, what, what should it be as we move beyond this pandemic? Yeah, I think, uh, as we've said, uh, the, the pillars of uh, access to justice and confidence in the legal system are those that should guide us. So moving forward is crucial, uh, but we can't move forward in a manner that is simply moving forward for the sake of appearing to be progressive. Uh, true progress and true modernization requires awareness of the particular situation of the justice system. As I've said, fairness, efficiency, and legal ethics, uh, assuring competence, assuring that the proper education and the proper framework are, is in place. The greater danger, and you've mentioned the, the, the tie-in to the larger issues of the digital age, the greater dangers are not necessarily these little unintended consequences that may be, of course, disastrous, such as identity theft and others. The greatest danger is operating in a vacuum, right? Uh, where these very basic, fragile, and crucial human interactions are, uh, are allowed to progress in the absence of parameters, uh, where these empty spaces are filled, uh, be it by, by private pr platforms, in an unregulated manner, and, when I, and in the absence of proper guidelines. So education and frameworks, I think, are the two keys in order to allow us to move forward in a mindful manner rather than simply being propulsed uh, forward uh, 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 by uh, 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 the, the forces around us. That being said, the, the governance in the legal sector is, is sometimes, sometimes a little bit diffused. And what I'm getting at is, you know, we have law societies, we have uh, elected representatives, we have uh, we have the courts themselves. Um, you know, how are they going to have to work together to get through this? Who is going to be responsible for making these rules? And uh, you know, and and does that raise you know issues of you know cutting in on the independence of the judiciary in some cases? Uh, you know, do we need? The, uh, the judiciary to work with the governments. I saw actually, you know, there was an interesting thing that came out the other day, which was uh, our, the chief justice uh, uh, making certain recommendations about changes to the criminal code, uh, which is which is interesting because you don't hear uh, someone in his position do that very often when that seems to be of uh, the purview of the legislator. Uh, so how do how do we get these different parties, uh, these key stakeholders, working together? to ensure that we can move a little more seamlessly to a, a digital era, era in our courts? Yeah, so uh, good question. But I, I think without, uh, if I had that answer, and you know, a, 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 a <laughs> snapshot, then I would be extremely proud of myself. But I, I, I'll just say two things. I think, first of all, it's clear that this needs to be done. There's some level of collaboration with respect uh, to these matters. Uh, bearing in mind independence as well. But so, so yes, there needs to be some collaboration. I do want to say, though, that this is not unprecedented. Most issues that need to be properly broached uh, do raise 
uh, these questions of the law societies, of the courts, of the federal government, of the provincial government. So in a democracy, this, this is often how decisions are reached. What I'm more concerned about, so this is not the idea of who makes the decisions when you have all these different uh, factions, is not the correct word, but when you have all these different institutions that you named, that's a problem that arises. It's not unique to technology, right? Uh, my concern is not how to overcome those impediments, because those are uh, inherent to the functionings of our system and, and are always uh, matters that are, that are dealt with. Uh, my concern is more that there be paralysis. And earlier on, we were talking about, you mentioned, and, and I think that word is, is, is a good one, you were mentioning abdication. And I think what's unique about technology is not that we have you know, law societies and federal governments and provincial governments and court. We always have that for most of the issues that are relevant to our conversation, right? That's not unique to the digital age. And that's something that's dealt with in a democratic society and has always been dealt with in Canada, you know, for better or worse. But uh, what I'm concerned is, is abdication. Technology seems to have, and I say technology generically, this effect on uh, some of us and in the legal profession and beyond, this paralyzing effect. Uh, and that's why we're, I think, in this conundrum to begin with, because for all these years before COVID made, you know, reared its uh, uh, ugly head, if you will, these issues were haunting us. The issues of private-public collaboration, uh, the issues of electronic documents, the issues of technological competence for lawyers, these didn't just suddenly come up with COVID. But uh, just like the larger context that surrounds it, meaning uh, uh, the fact that law is suited to territory, now we have cyberspace, how do like-minded democracies deal with these issues, which include uh, tax, which include uh, customs, which include issues that are way beyond the scope. They, they are scary because they involve change and they need to be rethought and some legal concepts need to be rethought, but it was always kind of left and we always kind of dealt with it hoping that they will somehow resolve or uh, left it to more experienced parties. And as you know, I've said elsewhere and in a recent report uh, that I shared with you, the purpose of democratic governments is to protect uh, human rights and that cannot be abdicated, right? That's not something that we can leave to a party that's more specialized. It needs to be addressed. So perhaps the opportunity of COVID is that we address it now and that we overcome the paralysis and fear. I think the how, the technical how, is something that we normally deal with in a democracy, right? We don't all, uh, it's not, it's not a, an easy decision-making process and, 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 and with good reason. I think getting over the fear, and there's a, there's a, there's a, a Talmudic saying that I really like, uh, which is that, and I'm paraphrasing, it is not up to us to complete the task, which may seem gargantuan, nor can we refrain from beginning. So we must begin, as judges say in their writing courses, the most important thing is to begin and not to be paralyzed by the seemingly gargantuan nature of it. Because if COVID has taught us anything, if we waited, we waited before, we can't wait anymore, right? And then it just gets increasingly intricate. And what we don't want to do is play catch. Well, that concludes our interview. I've been talking with Karen Eltis, the author of Courts, Litigants, and the Digital Age. Definitely worth picking up, given all the discussion we're having today about modernizing our courts. Karen, of course, is also a law professor at Ottawa U and a faculty member at its Center for Law, Technology, and Society. Thank you for joining us, Karen. And uh, to our listeners, please join us for our next episode of After the Pandemic, a conversation about the future of justice.